welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Robert Stolnicker, Professor of Philosophy at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and he is here to talk to us about conversational context. Robert Stolnicker, welcome. Thank you. So, conversational context is a topic that's been of interest to philosophers of language, especially in the past 30 years or so. What do we mean by conversational context? What are we talking about when we're talking about the context of uh, conversation between several people? Okay, the intuitive idea is simple enough. A context is the situation in which a discourse takes place. But often, it, particularly when one talks about things being in and out of context, it means the surrounding discourse. So when people are quoted out of context, generally you snip out a piece which, in order to understand or interpret it, you need to know what went on before and what followed after. Uh, but I think the broader notion of a context is not just the linguistic material surrounding a, a statement, uh, but the, the situation which includes the attitudes of the speakers, their interests, what the point of their conversation is, and uh, what they're trying to accomplish in the course of the discourse. So that's, and I think that's a, a fairly natural and intuitive idea. And, and then the uh, both the linguists and the philosophers are interested in trying to get some technical apparatus for sharpening and clarifying this intuitive notion. So we might think of an example in which I'm quoted out of context. So mm-hmm. let's say the local newspaper quotes me as saying, America is a terrible place to live, and this mm-hmm. creates a great debate. But what they didn't include was that I was talking to a bunch of fellow soccer fans about the mm-hmm. difficulty of finding soccer matches to watch and mm-hmm. observe that America is indeed a terrible place to live if you're mm-hmm. a soccer fan. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, is it right to think that the, the context out of which I'm quoted includes those people to whom I'm talking, their interests, the game yes, that we were right. talking and about? And of course, the particular relevance of that case, uh, or the particular way in which the context is relevant in that case is words like a terrible place to live are generally constrained by some particular situation and the context made clear what that situation was and so it restricted the claim. Same as if one in general, more of simpler kinds of cases, if one says everyone, you mean everyone in some group. So if you say everyone has arrived, the Queen of England hasn't arrived, but she wasn't invited, right? And so uh, everyone means everyone who was invited or everyone who was supposed to come or everyone who was expected uh, or you know there's no beer you say and you mean there's no beer in the fridge but context provides the fridge right so that again quoted out of context is you you leave out both the linguistic and the intuitive facts about the situation which were evident in the conversation but are not evident in the quotation right? Maybe when I say things, I often leave information out because it's obvious to the person I'm talking to. I don't have to spell out every last bit of information that's relevant to our conversation because we're both taking it for granted. Right, yeah. exactly, right. And, but that suggests, I mean, there's a mistake that sometimes used to get made by theorists who would say, well, that way of putting it suggests maybe that if we want it to be fully pedantic and thorough, we could make everything explicit. But... However much you try to make something explicit, you're always drawing on the situation you're in. So the idea that it's even possible to step outside of all contexts and say things 
you know, pure, that is, a, is a, perhaps an illusion. So, in fact, we're sort of forced to speak this way, uh, that we, we have no other way of speaking. We must draw on information that's salient to other people with whom we're conversing. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is our intuitive notion of context that we're all to some extent familiar with. But as you said, philosophers and linguists have been interested in coming up with theories of context. One of the terms that gets invoked often in those theories is one that it might be worth us clarifying. So philosophers tend to talk about the idea of possible worlds Mm -hmm. when they talk about context. So maybe before we get into these theories, we could talk about the idea of a possible world. What do Mm -hmm. philosophers mean when they say that? Right. Okay, so first, just to say a little bit about how possible worlds come into it, and they really come into it in several different ways, but the first kind of technical theory of, of context focuses on the question, how is what is said in a statement dependent on context? And that was the question, and so then the question, what should context be to contain the information which tells you what's said depends on. And so you have a list of, of items like the speaker, the time of utterance, the, the hearer, and so on. That then is your formal model of a context. And you say then what the semantic value, what, what a sentence, uh, meaning of a sentence is, should be understood as a function from that thing, that notion of context, to a piece of information, a proposition, what you're saying. And one represents what you're saying, that is what's said in an utterance, what's determined by the context, as uh, a way of distinguishing between alternative possibilities. So you say what you say, the content of what you say, is a matter of the conditions under which it would be true and what possibilities are you ruling out when you say something. So uh, the, the sort of content of information is the possibilities excluded and the distinction between the possibilities included and the possibilities excluded. Uh, And so one formally represents that with a set of possible worlds, the possible worlds one's distinguishing between. Then a second notion of context comes in and you say, well, the context is itself a body of information. The information uh, that you're drawing on, and uh, again, when we go back to the intuitive notion of context, it was the idea of something that included the purposes and the interests and the situation in which a statement is made, but it's, of course, what the participants take to be what they're talking about and what they're interested in, where they're going with their conversation. So a body of information in general, the background information, which is the uh, one crucial notion of context, is a formal notion of context, is a representation of the body of information that is taken to be the common ground between the participants in the conversation. And that's represented formally by a set of possibilities, the possibilities they intend to distinguish between. So the notion of a possible world has played a role in a whole range of philosophical theories. It's obviously relevant to understanding causation and understanding action as uh, you choose your actions based on the possible outcomes of your action and your beliefs about the possible outcomes of your action plays a role and it's a central notion in the notion of a probability space in uh, either thinking about objective chances or in thinking about degrees of belief and degrees of evidence and so on. That's the, the space on which a probability function is defined as a space of possible worlds. 
So all these theories, all of these applications in philosophy sort of raise the question, so what are we talking about when we talk about a possible worlds? And people have had different theories about this, but my own way of thinking about, I mean, the, the, the word possible world is perhaps overly picturesque. It suggests science fiction or something or parallel universes. And that's what some people like David Lewis have thought should be taken literally and seriously. But uh, I think uh, it's much more mundane, perhaps less sexy to talk about states of the world or possible histories or possible situations, but that's perhaps more accurate. So uh, what's a state of the world? A state of the world is a property that the world might have, something like that. So think of what a possible world is really is a way things might be. That is, it's a possible way the world might be. And while there's only one possible world in the literal sense, namely the actual one, uh, only one world that's realized or actualized, there are many ways the world might be. And part of the role of possible worlds in general in philosophy, but in particular in the issues about context and contextual dynamics of discourse, since the notion of a possibility, possible state of the world, plays a role in such a wide range of theories, it provides a framework for unifying various notions. So one wants to talk about how are causal and epistemic concepts related to each other. So if one understands the, the knowledge or belief of a person is represented by the possibilities that are compatible with that person's knowledge or belief. One represents causal notions in terms of what would happen under counterfactual conditions and so on. And then one there's a single notion that can help to connect and relate a lot of these concepts to each other within a framework that has some precision. To take an example, if I say the cup is on the table, part of what it is to say the cup is on the table is to rule out alternative places the cup could be. Like it's not under the table, it's not like in the middle of the air, it's not, you know, next to the table, it's on the table. It could be here and still be on the table or it could be over there and still be on the table. But the point is that there are different ways the world might be set up and in some of those ways the world might be set up, you might talk of it as a space of possibilities or something. In some of those ways the world might be, the cup is on the table, and in some of those other ways the world might be, the cup is off the table. And what I'm doing in saying the cup is on the table is drawing a line. And on one side of the line is all the ways the world might be in which it's not true that the cup is on the table, and on the other side of the line is all the ways the world might be in which it is true that the cup is on the table. Yeah, exactly. And one talks about a set of possibilities because any distinction you make, any line of the kind you're talking about, is one where there are many different ways in which it could be true, in which there could be a cup on the table. And there are many ways in which it could be somewhere else, even more. So all the possibilities that fit the one condition are contrasted with the ones that fit the other condition. I should say the uh, cups are always a good example. And I remember a time of a bunch of philosophers sitting in intense philosophical conversation about skepticism or something, and the cup was the the example, and the waitress came to take it away, and the person don't take that cup away, that's a philosophical example. <laughs> Presumably the same would apply to what it is that I and the person with whom I'm speaking am taking for granted. Right, um, yeah, yeah. Right, so once you have this way of distinguishing possibilities, then you can say, well, on the one hand, you have a situation where I know, we all know in this room, that the cup has been moved from one part of the table to another. The uh, listeners maybe don't know that. 
because they can't see what we can all see. And we not only can see the cup and it's moving, but the three of us are aware of the fact that we all can see what's going on. So you get a kind of iterated information state where we all know not only uh, that the cup was moved from here to there, but we know that we all know it. And so we can take for granted this fact and then that therefore becomes a part of the context uh, that we can appeal to in the subsequent things we say. So in your, in your earlier example, if you say everyone's here and I say, what, the Queen of England's here? Mm-hmm. Then I'm including a possibility or I'm including a possible world that you and those others who have been in the conversation have already ruled out. Right. That's yes. to say yeah. the possible world in which the Queen was invited. Right, would. yeah, right. Right. And again, it could be a mistake. I mean, not, not in that case, perhaps, but you could imagine that someone raises a more serious question. Well, what about Sam? And uh, because one would have expected him to be invited, but in fact, he was not. So then I. So this is a case where you have a kind of a disconnect uh, based on a failure of what one person took the context to be the same as what the other person took the context to be. So the idea of a defective context is the idea of a sort of a, what they all agree about and know uh, to be different from what the other person takes it to be what we all agree about and know. And obviously a mistake is being made when those two things are different. So thus far we've been making recourse to two different notions of conversational context. One would be information about who is talking, when they're talking, and where they are, things like that. And then the other notion of context we've been working with is the set of things that all the interlocutors are taking for granted kind of the common ground. Now, you've been interested in the distinction between these two notions of context. Yeah, good. Okay, so to start with, one thinks that the information relevant to understanding what's being said in a given situation should be information that's available to the addressee, the person you're talking to. So if I say he in the course of my statement and you don't know who I'm talking about, that is, you don't know who the he refers to, which is dependent on context, then you don't understand what I'm saying. So it's part of the idea of the part of context which is determining what's said, that it should be something available. So the notion of common ground or the notion of what's taken to be the information that we share plays both the role of determining what's said uh, and being giving you the situations which the person is trying to distinguish, the speaker is trying to distinguish between. And we, I mean, it's a perfectly intuitive idea that one should say only, use the means to say what one wants to say only in ways that one's audience can understand. And obviously you're trying to be engaged in this cooperative uh, activity of, of communicating information. If somebody doesn't know what you're saying, there's no point in it. Uh, uh, yet, if when you look to expressions of the language and say, what are the elements of the context on which what's said depends, you say, well, there's things like the speaker, the time, because you use tenses, the place, because you use words like here. So you have a sort of a list of things. Uh, and one formal way of uh, analyzing context, it's this sort of the sequence of elements is what defines a context. But then, when you look more closely, you see there are some cases where those elements which you need to interpret sentences are not available to the addressee. 
So when I say, does the has the meeting started yet? I know the meeting starts at noon, but I don't know whether it started yet because I don't know whether it's noon or not. So if your statement, is the meeting going on now? If now, in order to understand what I mean by now, you have to know what time it refers to, then you have to know what time it is to understand that statement. But obviously you don't. So there's a tension between the representation of the elements needed to interpret a sentence and the, the information that's common ground or available. And so one needs some kind of explanation. Uh, and this gives rise to a whole set of problems in philosophy about so-called self-locating or essentially indexical belief. The idea that you can know the objective facts, but you don't know where you are with respect to those objective facts. You don't know how to locate yourself in the world, in time and space. I know I'm here, but I don't know where I am, right? Because I don't know where here is. So understanding how these kinds of context-dependent expressions work in a situation where we're not perfectly informed is an interesting problem, gives rise to a tension between these two notions of context. Right. So uh, the philosopher John Perry famously made a case for what we've been calling essential indexical words. And uh, the thought there was presumably that there are thoughts that we can only have using words like I, here, and now, that we, mm -hmm. we couldn't have using other words, using words like 2.53 p.m. and in Chicago and Matt Teichman. It seems like what we're saying here is that acknowledging that fact commits us to making a distinction between these two notions of conversational context. Mm -hmm. Yes. But it's slightly more complicated or perhaps... Um, more problems get raised. We say it's not really quite right that you couldn't say those things in other ways. And this sort of broadens the notion of essentially indexical attitudes because nothing at all prevents me from giving myself a name, even if I don't know who I am. Giving you a name, even if I don't know who you are. And then I create a situation where I now know that if I call you Sam, because I don't know your real name, then I say, I know that you are Sam. And so I have dubbed you Sam. Right? Or I know that Sam is sitting in the room with me. I can put this in a purely objective way, even though, as far as the language is concerned, but the information uh, is still um, essentially connected to me in a certain way. It's simply it's my relation to something. And I think once one sees that, one sees that the special problem of understanding the content of our thought as something that can't be understood independently of our relationship to the things that we have information about, you see that it doesn't have to do with particular words, it has to do with something deeper about our relationship to information. So philosophers of language have worried about puzzles, so-called Frege puzzles, because Frege was the first philosopher to focus on these kinds of things, but cases where you have two names for the same thing, but you don't know that their names are the same thing because the process by which the name was attached to the thing uh, was by a different route. So the famous over-discussed example, because philosophers always come back to the same examples, uh, Hesperus and Phosphorus, the morning star and the evening star, the Babylonians didn't know there was just one planet uh, that was, I didn't know it was a planet, I guess, at the time, but that, that was being named by these two different names. But they're still proper names, right? So you say, if I 
something like that is going on with the I if, or, the, or the U. If I dub you Sam, then uh, knowing that Sam is, is Matt Teichman is something I don't know, even though those are two proper names for the very same person. Right? Uh, so the general problem of understanding identity statements and different ways of relating names to things, which doesn't, on the surface, have a form of a essential indexical, because it doesn't involve I's and these, these kind of words, I's and here's and now's, but it basically involves the same kind of information problem. So that's one of the things that comes out in looking, I think, at context. Yeah, so we like to think of information as somehow contained in the sentences we utter or something. The sentences that we utter are bearers of information, but I guess this line of thought seems to suggest that the information in what we say is not just contained in the sentences themselves or something to that effect. Right, yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of a startling result. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, in fact, it's something we said, uh, noted earlier, that one perhaps is inclined to think that the information left out could be filled in. But if you say that really it isn't just a particular part of language, it isn't that we could somehow fix the reference of all our expressions in an absolute way that would then eliminate this fact that somehow we understand the information we're talking about as relations to ourselves. And that there's no kind of language which cuts directly independently of everything, every context, to its subject matter. So you always are related to what you're talking about through a context, and there's no way to avoid that. I might, one way of bringing that out be to say something like, so you said earlier, well, I can know that I'm here, I just don't know where here is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you might think, well, okay, there are problematic cases like that, but we can make it clear. We can say, well, here is Chicago. Mm-hmm. Now you know where you are. Mm-hmm. But that might still not be enough. I need to know where Chicago is mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. what Chicago we're talking about yeah, amongst right, all the Chicagos that there may be. Mm-hmm. And we might think, well, all right, a level down, you work out where Chicago is, you work out which Chicago you're talking about, the same problem emerges. Mm -hmm. Again, we're always going to be relying on me understanding something that isn't right there Mm -hmm. in the sentence. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And the fact that, I mean, again, Chicago is a proper name, so it gets its meaning, its reference through a process by which somebody named it, and that process somehow is connected to me in a certain way, and that's what makes it possible for me to use that name to refer to that place. So you can remove or clarify by shifting from a very local, unstable context, one that shifts easily, to a more general and a more stable context. But you never escape altogether. But, uh, so even, I mean, you think, what science that provides you with languages for talking about the world, which are very objective. But still, the reference of our scientific terms are fixed by our relationship to the things we're talking about. Now, the more general kind of worry, that when you, when you move to this kind of very radical contextualism, that is, uh, the idea that uh, context is not sort of one limiting way of talking about the world, but is essential to talking about the world. There's a worry about realism. Some people think there's something anti-realist about this kind of contextualism. And I think one of the challenges is to show that uh, while we can talk about the world only 
by connecting ourselves only in virtue of the connections we have to it and to the things in it, that's no threat really to the fact that we really are stating objective truths about the world or objective falsehoods for that matter because the world, it doesn't follow from our radical contextualism that the world is the way we think it is. Because we're, again, come back to the notion of possibility which helps to sharpen this question. That you, you can distinguish between the possibilities and you can be right or wrong about where the world is in, in that space of possibilities. So it seems like the topics we've been talking about have all kinds of applications to um, other areas of philosophy and other concerns we might have. You know, politicians, for example, are always worried about what we've been talking about, getting quoted out of context and having their ideas misrepresented in that way. What do you think is the interest of studying the way what we mean is affected by the context in which we say it? Mm -hmm. Okay, first, just focusing on applications or ramifications within philosophy, there are contextual theories all over the place. So there's issues about contextualism, uh, about knowledge, and people who think you can respond to arguments for skepticism. One can uh, explain how we don't have to be a skeptic by appealing to contextual theories of knowledge, that what you know varies from context to context. Contextual theories of value. But one often talks in a very general way about contextualism versus some alternative to contextualism without being clear about exactly what uh, we're talking about. So I think getting clear about what context is and what it means to be a contextualist about some concept is an important across a wide range of, of different issues. But even um, outside of philosophy, I think if you try to understand political, social discourse, the way in which the rhetoric that's used in contested areas of any kind, but particularly salient in, in political discourse, one wants to think about the kind of broader strategies that are used and the way in which people exploit and modify the context so as to create a situation where the alternatives are such that choosing between them, alternatives about what's true in this case, is sort of skewed in their favor. So getting clear about how much context affects what's said and what's questioned in a question and is helpful for understanding the way in which people use the facts about the relationship to context, not some theoretical notions but just the practical ones, to move the discourse in a way that serves their interests. So while one doesn't want to move from a radical contextualism to an anti-realism, one does face the problem of a certain fragility in our discourse created by, by the uh, dependence on context, not just of what a particular utterance means, but of the whole way in which a discourse evolves. And I think this is a kind of troubling thing when one looks, when one complains about, in these days, about the level of discourse. It's not just the level of discourse, but the way both factual and emotive notions are used to constrain and modify the context, that one really can make an issue difficult to discuss if one doesn't, if one's not careful at clarifying exactly what's going on. So I think from a theorist's point of view, getting clear about both the linguistic and the philosophical aspects of notion of context is relevant to understanding what's going on in the rhetoric 
of social and political discourse. Robert Stolnicker, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.